Happy New Year, Pitchfork listeners. Here's a great conversation that we originally aired in July 2020 with Duke University professor Nancy McLean, author of one of my favorite and most distressing books, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. If it seems to you like the ultimate goal of the most extreme conservatives is to undermine democracy and cripple democratic institutions, well, according to her, you're right. McLean unpacks the meteoric rise in popularity of the radical rights ideas and offers a way forward for progressives based on lessons from successful social movements throughout American history. How did we end up with a political system and a set of economic policies in a democracy that benefit the few and crush the many? Buchanan's ideas have been weaponized by the Koch donor network to undermine the model of 20th century government in the U.S. But the great advantage we have is that for every Charles Koch, there's literally a million people who are not. There's uh, 300 and some million yeah, yeah. who are not. Okay, right. <laughs> From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Goldie, we're going to talk today to Nancy McLean, who wrote one of your favorite books. Well, I'm going to qualify. It's a great book, uh, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right, Stealth Plan for America. Great book. Everybody should read it. Uh, I, I hated it. I mean, <laughs> I, it is. it just makes me so mad. Yeah. It's, it's depressing, and it is not over the top to say that the world we're living in today, politically and economically, is the consequence of a multi-decade plot against America, against American democracy. And it, it's not an accident. I mean, I, I sound like a paranoid lunatic here, uh, yes, Nick. Yes, you do. But it's, uh, I, I mean, yeah. it's real. What she uncovers yeah. is this this very detailed and specific plan to basically undermine our democracy and impose the rule of a select group of libertarian oligarchs. Yeah, that's right. And so to be clear, Nancy McLean is a, is a historian, right. not an economist, uh, and she wrote a book about the history of this. But what's very interesting to us is that she wrote about a person James Buchanan, a Nobel Prize winning economist, who was at the very center of some of the most consequential and evil right. parts of the neoliberal takeover of both political parties. Right. Somebody who, yeah. who we were familiar with peripherally because of some ridiculous things yes. he wrote, quotes that we like to make fun of, yes. but who we had no idea That's right. his, his crucial role in this um, almost from the very beginning. Not a, a, a founding member of the neoliberal movement, but pretty early on, and certainly it's a chief strategist, it That's seems. right. That's right. And, I mean, he was consequential because he both evolved a set of ideas— that were weaponized into the most corrosive forms of trickle-down economics, 
and neoliberalism, but he also was the author of a bunch of political strategies that right. made that possible. And, and one of the most impactful ideas that Buchanan sort of, you know, created and sold was the, it was public choice theory, which is largely the idea that it, government it, is bad. Yes, government is bad. Why is government <laughs> bad? Because every group of people simply seeks their own advantage. And if you give government bureaucrats power, they will make choices which simply advantage them personally rather than the public good. Right. Either either they will make decisions uh, in their own interest or they will be captured by special Correct. interests, which in Buchanan's case, he meant unions. <laughs> Uh, yeah, people, or, humans, yeah. non-rich humans. Not, not businesses. <laughs> exactly. That, well, maybe some businesses, yeah. the businesses that compete with the Cokes. Yeah. But regardless, yeah. it's really this, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan with his, you know, government isn't the answer, it's the problem. Yeah. Uh, this is James Buchanan. Right. This idea that government, uh, you, you never want government to interfere. You never want government to spend money. Uh, because you can't trust government actors. One of the questions that people either do ask or should ask is, how did we end up with a political system and a set of economic policies in a democracy that benefit the few and crush the many? Right. Like, that, that, how did that, that happen? That, that are right? so anti-democratic. <laughs> yeah. How do you it's end not, But it's not just anti-democratic. Put, put aside anti-democratic. It's just anti-economic for the bottom 95% of people, right? right. Like... Forget and, the democracy. And, you know, you're just not getting paid anything. So how did we end up there? Right. Yeah. And and so th that's what's fascinating about this book. You can you can see in it how Nancy McLean starts out on a subject and had no idea where this book was going. Mm -hmm. She stumbles upon this archive of James Buchanan and learns through her research what an integral role he played. And uh, how really, uh, you know, a decade after his death, he's still playing this role today yeah. through the immense fortune of the Koch brothers and all the institutions they've set up, largely following the strategy that he laid out. And it was a strategy for weaponizing an ideology. I'm Nancy McLean. I teach uh, history and public policy at Duke University, and I am the author most recently of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right's Self-Plan for America. So first of all, we want to cover both your thoughts and thinking on social movements, mm -hmm. both in history and today. Uh, but we also want to connect that to your book. And, you know, Goldie and I had a big laugh because we have been deriding Buchanan for right. a long time. He, he, he's been a butt of a joke in this office because we work a lot on the minimum wage. Oh, really? Wa oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, we work a lot on the minimum wage. There's a quote from him we like to abuse uh, where he— Oh, the one where he called the economists who supported it camp-following whores? Yes, Camp-following exactly. whores. No. <laughs> the, 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 the idea that just as no physicist would claim that water runs uphill, no self-respecting economist would claim that increases in the minimum wage increase employment. So we've been poking fun at that for years. And then I read your book, and oh my God, we thought he was a clown. We didn't know <laughs> oh, he was an evil clown. Yeah, you know the the quote interests us a lot because 
the, you know, the main body of our work is tearing down neoliberalism as a meaning mm -hmm. system, as a system of thought. And the most pernicious part of the neoliberal meaning system is the claim that this is all like laws of nature, that th these are the yes. un inescapable mm -hmm. and unavoidable facts of life and, you know, so on and so forth. And this quote by Buchanan is like one of the canonical examples of that. Like he literally invokes physics, which is so interesting. But anyway, let's yes. tell us a little bit. Just tell our listeners a little bit about your book. Let's start with that. Uh, so my book started out in a very different direction than the way it ended up, which sometimes happens with historians, but not they usually don't go as far afield as mine did. I was uh, looking at the state of Virginia's reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, uh, particularly the policy of massive resistance that required the governor to shut any public schools that were going to desegregate, which they did in several Virginia communities. And as I started looking into that, I found that the economist Milton Friedman, another founding neoliberal uh, thinker, had actually issued his first manifesto for tax-funded school vouchers for private schools in 1955 in the full knowledge of how it would be used by Southern segregationists. So I thought, well, here's an interesting story about neoliberalism where nobody has found it before, you know, and, and put it in the South in the reaction to uh, the civil rights movement and desegregation. So I was following that story when Buchanan uh, kind of appeared in my peripheral vision. And to make a long story short, he just kept appearing in other places uh, in designing the Chilean constitution, advising on the uh, Pinochet constitution uh, that has led to huge demonstrations in the streets this past year. Many people being killed and actually blinded by security forces as they try to get rid of this constitution that has so bound their democracy. Uh, and then I moved to North Carolina in 2010, just after a radicalized Republican Party swept both houses of the General Assembly for the first time since Reconstruction. And it's a very different Republican Party. It was dominated by Tea Party figures funded by the Kochs and a local uh, cousin, people call him Art Pope. Anyway, I saw this new legislature enacting measures that were straight out of the Buchanan playbook. Uh, so I started to shift my vision to Buchanan. And when I was able to get into his private archive when he died in 2013, that really confirmed my belief that Buchanan's ideas uh, are have been weaponized by the Koch donor network to undermine the model of 20th century government in the U.S. And we can pick that apart in any way you want to. Right. And to be clear, you know, central to our thesis is that rising economic inequality undermines democracy. But, but your book, you point out that undermining democracy was exactly the point. Yes, I think that is crucial to to appreciate that distinction. And I'm so glad that you raised that, because there is an emerging sense among scholars across disciplines, you know, economists, sociologists, political scientists, historians, that, that the levels of inequality that we have now in the United States are absolutely a threat to democracy uh, for reasons that you've talked about and we could talk more about. But what I found that was so interesting and, and terrifying in a way was that this anti-democratic ideology among libertarians is actually pretty systematic and deep and thoroughgoing. And what Charles Koch found in the ideas of James Buchanan was something he'd never had before, which is a strategy to impose 
a minority agenda. Libertarians, a teeny tiny majority of the whole population, the really you know hardcore ones, but a strategy to impose that ideology on the vast majority in the full knowledge that if people understood that this was happening, they would act and try to stop it. So that is, and that's hence the title of my book too, Democracy in Chains, um, because, that, and that was actually uh, language that Buchanan himself used, this language of enchaining and speaking of the demos needing to be enchained. And that was because for a hardcore libertarian like James Buchanan or Charles Koch, democratic government is necessarily a problem uh, because it leads the majority to infringe on the um, purported rights of the minority of extremely wealthy people and corporations who don't like doing what the rest of their fellow citizens believe needs to be done. Um, So what Koch got from Buchanan was a strategy for how to reverse that through incremental changes in the rules that most people wouldn't even notice until it was too late. So can you give us some examples of the kind of rule changes that they were after and that they enacted? Yes. Well, and they've already done a lot of this uh, in the states, particularly since the 2010 midterms that had such low turnout on the, you know, on the progressive and Democratic side. So uh, and again, my uh, state, North Carolina, is a petri dish for this. It is one of their prime laboratories. And where I went to graduate school, the University of Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin was similarly a laboratory. So we could start with Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, who under the misleading guise of a budget repair bill, took away collective bargaining rights from public sector workers that they'd enjoyed for half a century. Um, That was an example of a radical rules change. And even within that law, there were all kinds of of smaller uh, uh, pieces, stipulations to ensure that it weakened unions as much as possible. Uh, That would be one example. Also, the spate of laws in states dominated by this Koch-backed, Koch-transformed Republican Party to suppress voting. So there's been a significant focus and understandable on the way that they have aimed at African-American voters, because that's legally actionable in the courts. But they have also aimed at young voters who are much more likely to want action on the climate, to uh, support, you know, kind of more progressive measures, you know, attempts to deal with inequality, et cetera. Uh, So voter suppression has been another piece. The most radical and sophisticated gerrymandering we've ever seen in our political history to make it so that these Republican legislators are choosing their voters rather than letting voters choose their representatives. And in some states, the impact is absolutely breathtaking. So, for example, in the 2018 midterms, Democrats in my state, North Carolina, won 50.2 percent of the vote and they ended up with what was it two to uh, two to nine two two seats versus nine on the Republican side, so the drawing of district lines has just been astonishing in its deliberate effort to to underrepresent voters they know would object to this agenda and try to block it and to overrepresent those on whom they feel they can rely. So those are some measures. There's also a lot of other stuff going through the courts and the you know efforts to change the legal thinking and the judiciary. But at every step, sharply focused attention to changing the rules. Right. And, and to be clear, this um, 
the voter suppression and the gerrymandering, it's not just uh, a partisan tactic in terms of just Republicans versus Democrats. It's it, it, You point out it's ideological. They actually want less democracy. It's not just less Democrats. Yeah. They're going for less democracy. They think democracy is dangerous. Yeah, I really appreciate your bringing that up because I think that part of our challenge in understanding what we're really up against in this country is the persistence of older terms that actually block our vision from what's happening. So the notion that this is partisan, that this is just, you know, Republicans versus Democrats or vice versa, or that this is a battle between liberals and conservatives. Both of those frameworks mislead the first one because this is no longer, you know, my father's Republican Party, one could say. Uh, uh, This is a party that has been absolutely transformed by the strategic um, uh, changes to the rules and the incentives practiced by these arch-right donors. And I'll give you just one example of that. Um, Charles, the Coke Industries itself and many of the other donors are based in the fossil fuel industry, and they are desperate to stop action on the climate, which their libertarian dogma also deems inappropriate. Well, by using the power of donors to punish any Republican who didn't toe the line with a primary challenge from the right uh, and the funding of candidates who did deliver for the donors, they were able to make it such by 2014 that only eight of 278 Republicans in Congress would admit that climate change is caused by human activity. And that is a radical transformation of a party that was not much different from Democrats in the early 90s in its recognition of the science. So, I mean, it's almost like invasion of the body snatchers or something, what they've managed to do to the Republican Party. So it's not really a a party anymore in the sense of traditional American major parties that were, you know, coalitions representing different interests. This Republican Party now has an almost Leninist uh, discipline, and that is by design from the the way the donors have re-rigged the punishments and the incentives. So you're a historian. Is there any historical parallel to what we're seeing right now? Not really, not in this level. I mean, what you have here is it's not the whole capitalist class. It is a fraction thereof, but a significant and extremely wealthy fraction. Um, One uh, journalist, George Mambio at The Guardian, calculated that if the fortunes of Charles Koch and his recently deceased brother David Koch were combined, they would be the richest man in the world. Um, So lots of wealth, and Koch has convened over 600 uh, other donors who give large amounts, but basically it is a deeply ideological, well-funded, highly strategic, integrated long game to transform our society, and we just don't have anything else like that in our history. You know, someone could point to, say, the election of 1896 and the way that corporations rallied under the leadership of the Republican Mark Hanna. They put in crazy amounts of money uh, to defeat uh, William Jennings Bryan and a kind of reform-minded Democratic Party. But even that is not like this, because this 
effort by the Kochs also involves quite literally hundreds of separate organizations, ostensibly separate, like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, the Federalist Society. You know, I could go on. Yeah. More organizations, you know, lots of organizations. And they're moving the same plan down the road in a kind of elaborate division of labor. I mean, I wish there was more coordination like this on the progressive side in order to counter this, but we've just never seen that kind of tight coordination before. Yeah, so interesting. Nor, if I may say, too, the systematic disinformation, like this whole enterprise relies on disinformation, whether it is climate science denial or the support that Coke network organizations provided to the tobacco industry, you know, when it was facing challenge to the support of Fox News and, you know, efforts like that, that kind of poison public discourse. It is a, a kind of a wraparound enterprise that is, uh, you know, I think really toxic to democracy. Come on, Nick, get a couple more zeros onto yeah, your net wealth and fight you know, back. It, what's interesting <laughs> is that, uh, you know, at the end of the well, day. Well, then, if I may say, I so appreciate your voice, Nick, in oh, you know you. speaking out in yeah. trying to bring other people of wealth to the understanding that you know this is creating an utterly unsustainable society. For sure. So obviously, Nick isn't rich enough to take on uh, the Koch brothers, and there really doesn't seem to be anybody on the left willing to spend money that way uh, over a fifty-year period. Uh, so we can't follow the the plan that the Kochs and Buchanan followed. But I'm wondering if there's any lessons from uh, this movement or other uh, conservative movements that, that we can learn in terms of fighting back against this. Yeah, I think there are definitely lessons that we can learn. Uh, one of them is the need for a long view, which has been... <laughs> pardon me, but in short supply on the progressive side for mm -hmm. some time now. You know, it was once the case at the early 20th century, at mid-century, et cetera, where progressives were thinking long term, where they were thinking decades ahead and what would happen in, you know, a generation or two. That is no longer the case, by and large. So thinking long term is crucial. Um, also, getting out of the silos is crucial. The si You know, I mean, there's been great work done in various um, uh, spaces of progressive politics, whether it's environmental politics or, you know, uh, dealing with economic inequality in different ways or anti-racism or feminism, et cetera. But our problem now is that there are there's not enough connection between all of these uh, domains. And even within them, uh, groups are fragmented and pitted into competition against one another by funders. And so it's it's a real problem. Uh, so those are some of the problems we face. I would say, though, I believe the single most important finding of my book is to see Charles Koch, James Buchanan, and their ilk saying again and again that they recognize that they are a permanent minority, that nobody wants the program they are trying to impose. And that is why they turn to stealth. They turn to stealth for the first time, as near as I can tell, uh, with Social Security in the early 1980s, 
seeing that it had just an almost universal phalanx of support, Buchanan came up with a scheme to try to undermine that by misleading the public, by divide and conquer uh, members of the coalition, et cetera. So um, that's just one example. But I think uh, if we pay attention to what is driving this on their side and focus in on that, we can help people understand what a tiny minority cause this is. In fact, when it's you know actually telling the truth uh, about what it seeks, we can expose that. We can help people understand the stealth measures that it's used and how it is rigging the rules in order to move through its program without having to argue openly for it. Um, and we can take advantage of the fact that there is a huge majority that this libertarian right is afraid of. But I do think that when uh, people come together across these various uh, differences of ideas, of demography, of region of the country, et cetera, and rally to stop this and to renew democracy, that could be an incredibly powerful and transformative force. So that's what I've been trying to encourage in, you know, my, you know, I've done a lot of speaking since the book came out around the country and worked with groups of all kinds. And, and I will say that's an exciting thing too, that everybody now realizes we are at an all hands on deck emergency moment for the future of democracy in this country. And so uh, people are trying to, to make bridges across the silos and work together to make structural democracy reform a top agenda item wherever progressives get power. So that, that I think is exciting. And there's people, for example, like Annie Leonard, the head of Greenpeace, you know, is saying, we realize we're never going to get a healthy environment unless we have a healthy democracy over at Planned Parenthood. They're saying we realize we can't protect women's health and their reproductive rights unless we have a healthy democracy within labor circles, people realizing the same thing. So I'm encouraged by all that. But, you know, I think it's going to take a lot more organizing and a lot more support and a lot more public education to make sure we make the most of that potential. And in fact, on a hopeful note, one of the ironies in your book is that Buchanan got his start focusing on trying to impose his ideological agenda in Virginia. And recently, the state of Virginia has completely flipped politically to the uh, Democratic side. Yes. And interestingly, that the big flip came in a single cycle. And since that's happened, they've done all kinds of things that have benefited the population and that contribute to democracy reforms. Uh, I'm often asked by audiences when I speak about this challenge that we're facing from the, you know, radical corporate right led by the Kochs. You know, it seems so daunting. It seems so systematic. It's so integrated. Sometimes, you know, people can feel overwhelmed by that. But, you know, my answer is, you think you've got a challenge? Go back and look at the abolition movement. You know, they had 33 people in a room when they brought together the American slavery, anti-slavery society. You know, there were enslaved African Americans who fled the, their conditions, who knew that they were not chattel, that they were human beings. And there were some radical white religious figures who agreed with them and thought slavery was a sin and a curse and a blight on the nation. But all the established institutions of our society were against them. Higher education, the mainstream churches, the courts, the papers, everything. And yet somehow they managed to transform the consciousness of the country 
so much that now it's almost impossible to explain to young people how it was that anyone ever believed they could hold another group uh, in slavery as, as was done in this country. So, so I tend to think of knowing history and particularly the history of social movements as being a very empowering resource and one that can be incredibly inspiring too in challenging times like this, because you realize that, you know, people in the past faced in some ways much more seemingly insurmountable challenges. And yet, (laughs) um, and again, I think this is why the fact that we're talking about a majority being threatened by a tiny minority, um, I think that we will, I hope, find ways to uh, to break through, to transform the public conversation, and to renew democracy in the ways that we've known it needed to be renewed and reformed for, you know, almost 50 years now on, on our side, too. Yeah. Which social movements do you find most promising today? Well, that's interesting. Um well, I think there's exciting things going on in many different domains, and you know, the um, some scholars and younger generation people, you know, use the language of intersectionality to get at that, but meaning that um, this this breaking through of silos, right, and connecting people with different um, uh, features of their identities. But I think that's happening in some really significant ways in the uh, environmental movement, and particularly among the young people who are focused focusing on the impending climate catastrophe. And I think that, uh, you know, what I see is an environmental movement that's been significantly transformed by environmental justice fights, which featured, you know, people of lesser means, often people of color, communities of color uh, that were being devastated by pollution and, you know, misuse of different kinds. And as that understanding has spread through the movement, I think it led to the development of concepts like the Green New Deal to realize that, you know, if we do want to protect our planet, we've also got to do it in a way that speaks to the very pressing needs and concerns of ordinary citizens for good jobs, for economic security, for uh, sustainable communities. And, And so I'd say that's I kind of think that has the greatest potential to unite people across different domains at this point. Again, I think that we need to to think big, to to dream big, but always in connection with where people are now, people who are in motion and you know what they you know are willing to take up and work for. And when that happens, uh, you know things that would have seemed impossible do happen, and they've happened regularly in history. So, so we have one final question for you. Okay. Why do you do the work you do? <laughs> uh, I love that. Um, I guess my, my flip answer is because I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, just being who I am and knowing what I know and feeling as strongly as I do about these things. Um, but I will also say... Uh, and this might be for listeners who have not gotten involved in things yet, but who are disturbed by what they see happening in the country, in the world. People forget to mention this often, I think, but being civically active is incredibly rewarding. You know, you meet other people who share your values, who share your commitments. There's a kind of a spree de corps to it, a fun, a camaraderie, and it is the best, 
you know, not antidepressant yeah. <laughs> that doesn't come over the counter in a jar um, to be with people who are good people who are trying to make the world better. And, you know, again, who share some of your ideas and values, but they always stretch you and challenge you. And and there's a lot of um, joy, actually, along the way uh, in that that camaraderie. So I'd say that's what keeps me going. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. Civic participation, social change, it's fun. Especially when you win. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Uh, and thanks for your work. Thank you, Nick and Goldie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thanks okay. for your show, too. It's thank really you. terrific. Okay. okay. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. So lessons from this you take away, you feel? Yeah. I mean, the lesson is one that I think we have well understood here, which is that it takes a plan to beat a plan. It takes a model to replace a model. And that one of the, I think, you know, she, she said that the left needs a long-term plan, and which is another way of saying the right had a plan and the left didn't. And as a consequence, it got rolled. You know, I think one of the lessons, of course, is the great advantage their side has is that there's so much economically at stake for those folks in prevailing that it is very easy to justify spending immense amounts of money. And they have immense amounts yeah, of money. That's right. To advance your side. Uh, the same is not true on the progressive side that, as you know, I run around the country talking to very, very rich people about helping with these things. And it's sadly a very rare one who is willing to subordinate their near term economic interest for the rest of the country, you know, human nature and all. But the great advantage we have is that for every Charles Koch, there's literally a million people who are not. For every Charles Koch, there's uh, 300 and some million yeah, yeah. who are not. Okay, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like um, the non-wealthy right. outnumber uh, the wealthy uh, 100 to 1. Right. You know, the people who don't benefit from these arrangements outnumber the people who do by 10 or 100 to 1. And so while they have money, we, you know, right. the, the, the side of righteousness and good has the overwhelming majority of people, if we can activate them, tell the right story and uh, get get slightly, even slightly organized. Right. And I think that, that one of the, the big uh, takeaways for me from this book is that uh, the Kochs and Buchanan and their team, uh, they recognized fairly early on, at least by the 1970s, that they weren't going to persuade a majority of Americans. Correct. That they had a minority ideology that would not hold sway. And so they had to resort to uh, subterfuge and to scheming and to lying and to the expenditure of these immense amounts of money yeah. in order to uh, achieve what they they have Achieved. I mean, yeah. let's be clear. They have been winning. Yeah. But as you said, there's more of us than there are of them. And um, we're not just on the right side, Nick. We're right. Yeah. We're actually 
right, both morally and intellectually, Correct. we have a better understanding of how the economy works. We have a better understanding of why maintaining a robust democracy is so important, not just to our individual liberty, but to, uh, ironically, our economic liberty and to the well-being of the economy as a whole. Yeah. And so if we can just get our shit together and build a movement, it doesn't have to be as good as theirs. Yeah. It can be bigger and more effective because there are many, many, many more of us than there are of them. That's right. And, you know, I think that uh, you know, whether it was their effectiveness or the left's fecklessness, the truth is that their ideas dominated discourse and thinking on the right and left for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. That there was no alternative to neoliberalism, really coherent, persuasive, uh, empirically verifiable alternative to neoliberalism offered and you know as a consequence even a you know in the absence of, of of alternatives even a bad idea will be accepted and so you know I take some solace in the fact that those alternatives are rapidly being developed and deployed and um, you know we're we our little gang of collaborators both here in Seattle and from around the world are working hard on on, right. on that stuff and I think that, uh, you know, I think that there's hope for replacing some of those bad old ideas. And I, and I think the challenge for Democrats in particular, progressives in general, is to really think carefully about the uh, cliches you spout and the assumptions you accept when you worry about whether a $15 minimum wage, or let's be clear, a $20 minimum wage will kill jobs. You are repeating the uh, assertions of James Buchanan. Yes. Right? When, when you worry about the moral hazard of forgiving college uh, loans, you are, you are repeating the, the same ideas of... James Buchanan, when you worry about whether we can afford Medicare for all, uh, you're basically echoing James Buchanan. Right. So, so understand that these ideas are so strong and have been put into our heads for so long because there was a multi-decade effort to put those ideas there. Right. And we need to actively play a role in reaching into our own minds and pulling out all these, these bad ideas and these bad assumptions and... Uh, you know, fight for the type of economy and democracy that we want instead of the, the best we think maybe we might be able to achieve. Yeah, I agree. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.